0: hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen today, whether it's on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, Stitcher, maybe you're watching the show on YouTube. It really doesn't matter. The bottom line is we are so grateful that you are taking time out of your day and spending it with us. We cannot thank you enough. And so as a thank you, ladies and gentlemen, we have a legend on the show today. This is a man who has devoted his entire life's work to exploring the connection of plant-based diets and your health. And it's work that began 60 years ago and is still going strong today it is with great joy and great enthusiasm that we are welcoming Dr. T. Colin Campbell to the exam room. I recently traveled out to the Fairfax VegFest and had the opportunity to sit down with him for about 20 minutes, literally just after he walked off of the stage giving a speech to a packed crowd. He walked off the stage and we sat down and we just started to talk and we talked and the chat Lasted, like I said, 20 minutes or so, but it seemed like it went by in the blink of an eye. So amazing. You're going to hear Dr. Campbell talk about his own wife's experience in turning to a plant based diet. After she was diagnosed with cancer, you're going to hear about his optimism about future research and the next generation of doctors who are taking seriously the concept of preventative medicine, not just treating diseases, but trying to prevent them in the first place. And he says speaking with that group now is his greatest joy. So it's tough to pack six decades of wisdom into just one conversation. I mean, heck, we could have killed hours talking about the China study alone, but we did our best to get as much in as possible, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And then we're going to follow that up by continuing to examine the cancer-causing diets by revisiting an interview I did with Dr. Neil Barnard. It's another solid half hour of information that's important you listen to. And in keeping with the prevention theme, we also get into the best foods that you can eat to lower your risk of developing chronic diseases, including cancer, preventing them in the first place. We've got treatment, we've got prevention, and it starts right now on the exam room as we welcome the legendary Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Dr. T. Colin Campbell with the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee and the Weight Loss Champion. It is such an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the invitation. We just got finished watching your presentation up on stage, and one of the things that really kind of struck me, and I'm going to have you talk right into this, one of the things that really struck me was the way that you were referring to the cancer mutation as a switch that you can kind of flip on and off. And people really, I don't think by and large, unless you're really ingrained in nutrition, understand just how powerful of a role food plays
1: in flipping that switch. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, that's why the NCI, for example, has on their website, so does American Cancer Society. I mean, I've been in both communities. Well, virtually all of my research actually came from the cancer community. Mm-hmm. I've been close to that community. And they have, it's, it's just, it's a, I would call it a stubborn, a, really a stubborn insistence on the idea that cancer is a genetic disease it's been that way for years. Sure. And if you look on the website of NCI, you see it there. Cancer is a genetic disease. It's almost like they make no mistake about it. <laughs> they're, they're really insistent on that. And I think that my, my interpretation of that is that that enables the belief that cancer is not modifiable by nutrition. Right. Right? Because mutations don't get, they don't go backwards or forwards because of Nutrition, not not backwards for sure. And so there's no room in that argument for nutrition. The oncologists, in turn, have never taken any nutrition. And of those who might know something about nutrition, they're talking about individual nutrients, supplements. All that, in my view, is beside the point. Right. And so when you take the whole food, organize a study that way, and I must say my youngest son, the physician, Mm-hmm. We've got now some funding for him, and he's been able to more than double it with funding elsewhere. He's already now has a study underway, a very carefully done study, IRB-approved six times over. Wow. Amazing. I mean, a lot of—but he, he's at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and he's uh, recruiting women now with uh, stage 4 breast cancer, the toughest of the tough. Right. And we'll see what happens. Um, and there's one shortcoming— So, I I don't know what to expect. One shortcoming is he's being forced, or essentially, to um, use this diet on breast cancer patients who are using chemotherapy along with it. Mm -hmm. And I can make an argument that could not work. Because the chemotherapy agents themselves, the body wants to get rid of it. They want to metabolize it by the same enzyme system to activate carcinogens. So there's some, there's some kinetics going on here that aren't quite squared away. If people are taking chemo, especially the cytotoxic chemo, and they're putting that on top of that, that's the kind of thing, I knew this from 40 years ago, when that's the kind of thing that would maybe compromise the, the ability of the body to get rid of the chemo. Interesting. Which in turn might be more of a problem. Sure, sure. So there's some complications there. But nonetheless, this is a start. We'll see what happens. And, uh, because I'm... I'm rather convinced that if, um, I know my medical colleagues wouldn't hear of it, uh, but uh, I'd like to see patients who choose not to take chemo and just do this whole food beverage diet. No one wants to do that because, you know, it's so built into the system. Don't, don't even hint at people of doing that because that's uh, irresponsible, if you will. But I know there are people who have done that. My way is the case in point. She was diagnosed with uh, third stage, stage 3 melanoma, mm-hmm. tough cancer. And uh, it was a surprise at the time. And the doctor wanted her to, you know, have all the left glands removed because they the left to the left gland in that part of her body. And uh, he uh, also was ready to put her on chemo. That was 14 years ago. She told him, said, I'm not doing it. Wow. And he freaked out. And so all she did, we got really strict she'd been on this, and there's no evidence of that melanoma spreading. Wow.
0: Wow. No chemo.
1: Yeah, so the whole cancer discussion, I guess I'm getting, going on the air with this, but uh, so I'm saying some things that are very provocative for some people to believe, but I really don't care. <laughs> they have to prove me wrong, because I hypothesize, and that's the word I'd like to use, I hypothesize that the whole food, plant-based diet given to People with cancer and without drug treatment, that's the study that I would like to see done.
0: You know, it's funny you're talking about chemo treatment for cancer and things like that because it wasn't that long ago that I had a gentleman on the show who uh, was diagnosed with cancer, very aggressive form colon cancer and he underwent chemotherapy and he went to this group and you know he became friends with everybody getting chemo with him at the same time every week he was the only one out of that group that went plant based and so while they began getting sick and their hair would fall out because of the treatment his hair never fell out he said he never got sick a day in his life and he you know went through it very I mean who can say that it was easy you know nobody wants to be in his shoes but certainly he didn't experience nearly the side effects that the rest in the group did.
1: I, I I've heard a number of cases like that. And one, I mean, they're anecdotal. Let's face it. Yeah. They're not published. Yeah. So you have to be kind of careful what you say here, but uh, and I try to be careful. But at the same time, I'm not going to be uh, clamped shut. Right. Not offering my opinion because it sounds so outrageous. It's Not the first time in my life, I, <laughs> you know, I said things that were not popular. But I'm, I think, uh, and I, I know there's cancer patients that don't want to do chemo. Right. Why should they be even led to believe, maybe indirectly, that the only course of action is doing chemo? Why should they have to suffer that? For the chemo, especially the cytotoxic chemo, it's not working, really. A couple of cancers, maybe, is some evidence. But that's not the way to solve the problem. Right, right. So I, I'm hoping my son gets something out of it. Then we'll go forward with the next stage. You know, a really big study, maybe.
0: Do you think that as doctors become more and more aware of the link between disease and nutrition, you will see some of your colleagues lessen that resistance to some of the ideas that you're putting forward?
1: Yes, definitely. In fact, I would say that the the most uh, Joyful part of my career in the last 10 20 years has been um, speaking to medical schools. I've spoken to at least 200 more than that around the country. They like to hear science, so I kind of get into the science with them. Uh, they haven't been trained in nutrition. At first, when I was doing this, I was mostly met with silence. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe I'm not doing very well. I'm not explaining. Uh, Maybe they're too shocked or whatever. And so there wasn't too much discussion in the first half dozen or so, or ten or twelve. But then I, I noticed there was more interest being shown. Because they do like science. And the fact is, they just aren't trained in that area. They weren't trained in biochemistry all, all that well. And certainly weren't trained in nutrition. When I started explaining, well, look at this, this, and this, uh, all of a sudden it started warming up. And the first reaction from my perspective, that it got personal reaction was anger some of them coming forth and saying "What well, you know we never heard this before I say yeah, I know you didn't and so they get enthused now in the last six or seven years starting with the plantarist congress I, I think more or less several times I've spoken to physician groups I get a standing ovation when I'm introduced not when I'm done when I'm introduced Right, right. from uh, physician rich audiences and now I'm finding out physicians are kind of buying into this. That's the one group, and my estimation is, is uh, making a change. And Probably because they're, in, and they're in, they got into medical school because they wanted to help people. Sure. And they didn't learn this, so it's understandable why they'd be somewhat reluctant in the beginning. Yeah. It would. Yeah. But I you know, think it's getting out there.
0: It's it's so funny, you know. My um, my doctor. I remember when I told him, I said, "Hey, doc, I, I switched to a vegan diet," and he's like,
1: well,
0: "Where do you get your protein from?" You know that That's question, that. and and it's you get those questions from from doctors still, and I think that that really goes to show really just how little is is taught of of this. I mean, it's it's just mind blowing.
1: Right. You're absolutely right. That is the key question. I, I call, in this new book, I'm introducing an idea that um, protein is the driver of nutrient. I call it driver nutrient. We use that word in genetics. We use that word in uh, some other systems. What that means is that amongst, the, let's say, a collection of possible causes, mm-hmm. I'm going to say animal protein is the driver of nutrient. And, and I'm saying that because that... You know, our getting caught up in consuming animal foods came from well, first off, animal foods but then it was justified because it was animal protein and animal protein in turn was high quality, quote unquote. So I'm challenging all all that stuff uh, because I know what the methodology was, I know the history of it, I know the individuals in a lot of cases and uh, I'm going to call them out on it that uh, the animal protein of all the nutrients, clearly there's no other to match it. I don't care what and one antioxidant, or whatever the one nutrient that is more to solve the world's problems than any other is animal protein. Mm-hmm. No mistake about it. But uh, you know, my colleagues, even in this field here, the plant they don't ever talk about animal protein. I'm, I'm kind of sad about it, but they don't. <laughs> they're always talking about fat, or omega 6, or omega 3, or fiber, or something like that. Sure, or sugar. sure. And uh, I think they're missing the both. So, I wonder.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about something else that you talked about in your presentation, and that was supplementation, supplements. It's a huge industry, uh, as we all know. Um, And you talked about a beta carotene study uh, that was done on smokers, and the... the Disparity between somebody who was taking the beta carotene supplements versus somebody who was getting it through their diets. Big deal. And, I mean, you were talking about, what, an 18% difference in each direction, so a 36% right. swing overall, I mean, right. between prevalence of cancer versus not. I, that's huge. Why is it in your estimation that supplements don't work as well as you know getting beta well, carotene from a
1: carrot i think the answer is pretty simple really it's the fact that when you take a nutrient out of food now it's minus this context the context is not there now at that point in time you can say sometimes all hell is going to break loose that nutrient is out there on its own usually being administered at some dose that's not relevant mm-hmm that's one part, part of the problem. But just the fact that it's being uh, consumed in isolation is, is a big deal. Because when the beta-carotene is, or other things, when it's being consumed as food, you got the whole package there. Nature already figured out how to do this. I'm a great fan of nature. Right. And, and I think nature figured out how to do this, eons ago. And... Uh, you know, had a package when you eat the whole food, most of the stuff there that's needed is there. Right. Especially if you use different kinds of foods. you know, some variety of, right. sure. Obviously, and you put that you put that all together, it only stands the reason. And so and I think the beta carotene was one of the first wake up calls on that point. At least for for me.
0: And certainly I would assume then it would go for virtually every other micro and macronutrient yes. out there.
1: Well, it depends. It depends on the dose being tested. Sure. If you give a small dose, what the heck, you're not going to see anything much, either way. Right. But if you give a higher dose, which is oftentimes the case with supplements, out of context, wrong doses,
0: wrong timing. Um, I think one of the things that uh, Dr. Barnard and I have discussed on the show is taking or having too much iron in your diet and the adverse effects that can come from that. Sure. And so I think one of the things that a number of listeners have written in and and asked is like, well, should I be taking a a multivitamin that does not have iron in it? And, you know, maybe they, you know, have a requirement that they feel like they need to take this multivitamin. And so now they're looking for some without iron and and things like that. But if somebody writes in, I'm just curious, like, what? what would your response be? Should I be taking a multivitamin without iron or should I be taking a multivitamin?
1: The second, <laughs> you know, I I would I want to see the justification for taking a multivitamin. I mean, sometimes, yeah, in the short run especially, you might see some benefits. The levels go up in the blood a bit. You can see that for a lot of studies. But I want to see, and maybe even uh, something looks like a benefit. But to what extent... Is that, should that become a routine practice? Because when people begin to believe, oh, that's working for me, you know, and then in the process, I'm doing something good for myself, I'm going to keep on eating food I want. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. That's not silly. And so on the other side of it, the body is such that when when it's faced with something that's wrong dose, wrong time, wrong context, uh, the body immediately reacts and tries to straighten things out. Sure. So you get things like drug tolerance, in that case. You get tolerance to this stuff. And, uh, I mean, I think the power of the body, let's call it nature, to do things, to put things right, is just incredibly powerful. Yeah. And we kind of screw around in the modern technological age doing this, that, and something else. And then we wonder why why it doesn't work, or why why this arose, or why that arose. So I, it's a fair question I, I, I've been there I've, I've done that I'm looking, people ask me those questions they say quit thinking yourself <laughs> <laughs> unless you can show me you've got real evidence yeah okay I'll, I'll buy it so,
0: let me let me ask uh, this, this last question I know that you, you still have a lot of people here who want to meet you you've been in this game now for a long time what would you say your legacy what do you want your legacy to be
1: Well, I I, My first word has always been integrity. And in fact, I I think the words science and integrity are synonymous. Mm -hmm. It may sound odd, but for me, you know, as naive as I was, first person ever go to college, farmer, farm, all that sort of thing. um, I didn't know what to expect, but I do. Once I did remember one thing: always, my father. You know, only a couple years education, farmer. Um, he was he was an immigrant but he, one thing w- with him was really really important tell the truth he used to say tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth end of story and so and he had up in Loudoun County he had a great deal of respect for integrity he was well known for his integrity well that stuck with me yeah. so and then I come to find out that science the, th- the theory of science, the concept of science, the idea of forming you see something, you form a hypothesis, and you can make a hypothesis to anything. That's fair enough. Sure. Uh, as long as you're willing to be wrong, <laughs> you make a hypothesis, then you test it. You test it appropriately, and then you look at the data. And if it doesn't go your way, okay, then I'll go back and reformulate the hypothesis. I mean, it's very straightforward. This whole process, but you never ever could cheat. Right. Never always, see. Always ask yourself, am I being biased here? I mean, I know something about bias because I was, you know, coming from the farm as I was. That was a big challenge for me because I'm, I'm getting pot shots here and there in every place. You know, why are you talking about this area? That, that's got to be wrong. isn't it? It really makes you think, do I want to keep on talking about this one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it always, I, I get great comfort and remembering what my father's advice was and uh, also my wife she's of the same ilk from a family no college education and we both come from no college educated people on either side so we're coming out of, coming out of uh, Trump country I guess you could say yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. just but you know I'm partial to the country people too right? yeah. I, think, I think when you're out in the fields plowing or harrying or whatever you're doing all the time, you know, oftentimes you're, you're by yourself. You solve your own problems. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a good training. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think it really is a question. Tell the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. It's a, it's a good, and good I, recommendation. <laughs> and
0: I think that that's really kind of critically important as we continue to bring the science forward. And if you are telling the truth, the facts don't lie, as we right. say. And so you know, hopefully right. more and more people will continue to listen. I mean, you have to have witnessed the same thing that I'm sure everybody else here today has. And that is that this nutrition movement and people, more and more people are opening their eyes to the power of the plant-based diet and all of the benefits that come with it. Right. And you have to be optimistic about where things are heading at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I am. I mean... Uh... Some people think I should be very pessimistic. Some of the things that have happened is going to be part of the book. You know, like getting me thrown out of my society, first time in the history of the society. That was an official hearing in Washington. Right. Or like getting me thrown out of Cornell. Uh, but I had tenure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and then taking a, a $7 million contract with NIH to do some research and beyond the China study. Taking that back after it was approved and recommended for funding, and you know, all of that, taking it back because I was a fraud. Uh, You know, that kind of stuff, I have to say, I mean, it's troublesome. Sure. I I finally had a file, it became two files after some years. After after getting a lot of crap from people, I started throwing it in the file, and I called it the the garbage file. I garbage file one, garbage file two. My garbage file too disappeared. But my first garbage file, when I started writing this book, what I did, I went back and got out my garbage file, started reading some stuff I hadn't even read before, connecting some dots. You know, some of this thing between, this happened there, this happened there. You were kind of connecting dots. And then I could see a network of uh, resistance. Uh Aha. And talking to each other. Those people, they were talking to each other. And about me in particular, my case, obviously, and uh, yeah, it's kind of tough. Yeah. But you know, I, I also then I said, wait a minute, this this crap, if I can call it that, uh, for me is a is a another opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for me to shine a light. I said on what you did, and then use that as a takeoff point to argue the contrary. Here's why you're wrong. here and then at the same time, and I did this at Cornell four times without success, I offered to debate my chief critics who were very influential in Washington. Oh, very nice. Okay. And one time in uh, my class, I sent me some students in that class, signed a petition. And they would not answer me. And both of these people that I'm talking about, one of them was like the director of the Food Nutrition Board at that uh, Academy. He was also the chairman of the Dietary Guidelines Committee. Wow! Very powerful figure with the dairy industry. Yeah, yeah. And the other one is the founder, in many ways, of uh, Bolivian growth humble, and now the whole genetic movement. Yeah. And I mean, these are very powerful figures, but they won't. They won't. I say you name the place, you name, the, you name the time, the place. We'll show up, and we'll get an audience for students. we not do it. They wouldn't do it. No. So I see that. It, that could be disappointing but also it enables me now to tell you this is what was offered and they turned it down so then you can ask the next one, why did you turn it down for I got I got a lot of money actually you know generous amounts of money put, put it that way from NIH mm-hmm. my entire career and more than anyone actually and uh, so uh, I, and now I'm in a position especially at my university but it's elsewhere is that how can, I, how can I take the public's money? Learn what I learned. If others don't like it, that's their problem. Learn what I learned. And then you're going to try to tell me that I can't tell this to public. So who, are, who are you to make that judgment that the people who have paid for my research can't learn what I did with it? Right. That's what I mean by running into difficulty. You have to stop and think. Yep. You try to frame, frame the... Uh, characterize the, the condition as it is, use it, <laughs> just well, use it. <laughs> well, I, I think that you've done a, a
0: masterful job of getting uh, a lot more people to, to open up their minds and open up their ears to uh, to the research that you've been doing, and onward and upward from here, my friend, you know? Thank you. You know, sometimes in life we just have those, oh, wow, pinch me kind of moments And having the opportunity to interview Dr. Campbell was certainly one of them for me. How much knowledge does he bring to the table? It's a lifetime's worth, and we barely scratched the surface in those 20 minutes. I'm telling you, we would need an entire series with him. We're talking about a Ken Burns-style epic, a series with umpteen million volumes so that we can properly chronicle everything that he knows. (laughs) <laughs> I'll see, I'll see what we can do. Well, my thanks again to Dr. Campbell for coming by. And also a big thank you to Gwen Whitaker, who organized the Fairfax Veg Fest and helped to arrange the interview. Be sure to check her out at the amazing plant-based restaurant that she owns. It's called Green Fair, and it's in Reston, Virginia, just a stone's throw away from Washington, D.C. And now here's a pro tip for you. Here is a pro tip from a D.C. local. If you're flying into the area and you touch down at Dulles Airport, Green Fair is only about 10 minutes away from there. So check it out on the way to your hotel or build some extra time into your day before heading to the airport. It is way better than any food you will ever, ever, ever find on the plane or at any terminal in any airport in the world fantastic cannot say enough about it and if you want to continue the conversation what dr campbell and i were talking about take a moment to follow us on social media you can find me on twitter and instagram at chuck carroll wlc that's carroll with two r's and two l's the wlc standing for weight loss champion and the show and the physicians committee follow them on twitter at pcrm and on instagram at physicians committee and Dr. Barnard, he's on Twitter too. Why not? He's coming up. Give him a follow at Dr. Neil Barnard. Shoot us your questions or your thoughts. Just use the hashtag exam room Now then, I want to continue our discussion about the link between diet and cancer today. A while back, I had the opportunity to do a special Facebook live with Dr. Barnard, where he and I did a deep dive exploring specifically how meat and dairy factor heavily into cancer risk, and whether it's more about what you don't eat versus what you do that can cause the genetic mutations that lead to various forms of the disease. His answers, what he brings to the table, spot on. And speaking of the things that you do eat, Dr. Barnard also has some of the best foods to turn to in order to help lower your risk of developing cancer. So make sure that they are on your plate as we revisit this potentially life-saving conversation. Today, we're talking about foods that can help fight cancer. And a leading expert on all of this is Dr. Neil Barnard. My man, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you, Chuck. Glad to be here.
0: Let's just dive right into this, you know, because there are an estimated 1.7 million new cases of cancer that will be diagnosed in the U.S. alone this year. And my question to you is this, very simply, how big of a role does diet play when it comes to cancer?
2: Well, you know, historically people have thought food wouldn't matter, it's genetic, or it's bad luck, or you you got some some genetic mutation from a chemical you're exposed to. But the reason that we know it's food, uh, that that it plays a huge role, is that if it were just genetics, cancer rates really wouldn't change because genes don't change much over time. But cancer rates have changed, and they've changed rapidly. Um, When Japan started westernizing its diet... It started really in the 60s, but then particularly in the 1980s around there. Uh, fast food came in, meat came in, milk came in, uh, rice went out. A plant-based diet started to be more of a meat-based diet. And cancer rates just went, went up, particularly breast cancer, but some others as well. We've seen a similar rise in this country whenever diet is changing. So the way it shakes out um, is that genes do play a role, probably a few percent, way mm. less than 1 in 10. Cancers is genetic. Uh, tobacco plays a big role, but luckily that's starting to, to change because um, people have been quitting smoking quite progressively, although it's still a big factor. But uh, what that really leaves is food. Uh, and I would suggest that if we could wave a magic wand and have everybody really on a healthy diet, we could prevent the majority of cancers, uh, the vast majority of cancers. We're not going to prevent them all. Uh, because you can be on a good diet and still have, still, it can still happen, but we can greatly reduce the risk.
0: Now, sticking with food here, is it more of a matter of what you don't eat versus what you do eat? Ah,
2: um, great question, and it's, the answer is both. Um, there are certain things that, that cause the cancer. There are certain things on our plate that can help prevent it. I'll give you an example. Um, on the preventive side of things, uh, researchers learned a long time ago that take a tomato, that red color, very pretty, but it's lycopene, L-Y-C-O-P-E-N-E, lycopene. It's a an antioxidant. And men who consume the most tomatoes have a dramatic reduction in their prostate cancer risk. Why? Because the red lycopene knocks out the free radicals that could otherwise cause genetic mutations leading to cancer. Uh, beta-carotene, the orange color. And I don't mean beta-carotene in a pill. I mean in a carrot <laughs> right. or, or, or in a sweet potato, right? Uh, something like that. Um, also reduces cancer risk. Uh, vegetables and fruits in general do. Fiber, which is the roughage in vegetables and beans and fruits and whole grains, reduces the risk of colorectal cancer. But there are plenty of things that increase the risk of cancer that are not protective at all. Meat and dairy are right at the top of that list.
0: Yeah. It, it, is processed meat in particular like the primary offender because we know that the world health organization has come out and said this is a big time carcinogen you probably shouldn't be eating this yeah
2: uh with processed meat which by the way is hot dogs bacon sausage ham the deli slices like bologna or salami um Yes they are major contributors to cancer but the, but the, the reason they have been singled out isn't so much that they're necessarily bigger contributors or contributors to more cancer than other foods but because the evidence is so strong the jury came in a long time ago <laughs> and the jury was unanimous we have so ma- we have dozens and dozens of studies that show that these foods cause cancer, particularly colorectal cancer. And the reason we're concerned about that is that the rates are rising in young people. There there are other cancers we're making some progress. Mm -hmm. This one, we're losing ground. And it's not that kids are changing in in some physical way, it's that bacon is a fad. And and, and kids are served bacon at home by their well-meaning parents, or they're served it in schools or other places. And bacon, sausage, ham, uh, they pick it up at the fast food place. um, And uh, this disease, just that disease, colorectal cancer, kills about 50,000 people in America only Mm -hmm. uh, every year. Mm -hmm. And the rates among young people are going up, up,
0: up, up, up. So you mentioned these foods. And one of the things that I'm thinking is uh, these are all high-fat foods. And so naturally, I'm starting to wonder then, is there a link between fat consumption and cancer as well? For a
2: couple of things. Yeah. yeah, The the big themes really are when we look at hormone-related cancers... Uh, For men, that's prostate or testicular cancer. For Mm -hmm. women, that's breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. Those are hormone-related cancers, meaning they are driven by hormones. um, And food affects the hormones. And then the other big category is the digestive cancers. That's where colorectal cancer comes in. The foods are hitting the digestive tract. Those are the two big categories where food plays an especially big role. But what about fat? Uh, Let's say you're eating fatty foods. Fatty foods cause weight gain because they're the most calorie-dense foods there are. And the more body fat you have, uh, the higher your, your cancer risk. And we think of body fat. You know, it's it's just a little balloon filled with fat. No, fat is actively working. It's it, Body fat in a woman's body is making estrogen, the female sex hormone. That drives her cancer risk. And the same is true in men. A man accumulates some body fat, he may get some breast tissue, breast development. And that's not just fat. That's actually breast tissue because every one of those fat cells on his body is producing female sex hormones.
0: Interesting. I think that a lot of people associate obesity with heart-related ailments, and I think that there's still a lot of ground to be made as far as the link between obesity being overweight with cancer. So I'm really glad that we're discussing um, that.
2: Very important. And, and people are right. Um, overweight increases the risk of heart problems. It in, it's, increases blood pressure. It increases cholesterol a little bit. All that's really rough on your heart. But uh, when you look at women who are o- overweight, their risk of, postmenopausal breast cancer goes way up. For some reason, that has never been clear for the cancers that arrive before the age of menopause. They're actually not pushed by overweight at all. Um, In fact, overweight young women are somewhat less likely to develop premenopausal breast cancer. But the great bulk of breast cancers are postmenopausal, and the heavier a woman gets, the higher her
0: risk Interesting. I want to go back. You mentioned fiber a few minutes ago, and that seems to be, we're talking about cancer-fighting foods. It seems to be that fiber here is going to be a key ingredient in helping to lower your risk of of Mm -hmm. developing a cancer as well.
2: Yeah, and and part of that is because high-fiber foods fill you up without any calories, so people who eat more fiber-rich foods slim down. Good, good. But fiber does more. Uh, Fiber, meaning the roughage in vegetables or beans, it's in your digestive tract. And as it goes down your digestive tract, it does something very nice. Um, your liver is filtering your blood. And it finds excess estrogens and sends them through the bile duct into the intestinal tract. And fiber takes those estrogens and says, I'll take it from here. Mm-hmm. And brings them out with the waste. And helps reduce a woman's estrogen level. She's still a woman. She still has adequate sex hormones for, to have a normal cycle and everything else. But she doesn't have that excess and that's going to help prevent cancer. Interesting. At least that's what that's what all the evidence suggests.
0: So, if uh, let's go back to men. Uh, if a man is eating a diet that is low in fiber, lots of lots of meat, mm-hmm. lots of uh, you know just unhealthy foods, shall we say, because there isn't that fiber and it can't get pushed through, is that we're talking then about colon cancer? Is it because that those hormones mm-hmm. and that stuff can't get pushed out of the colon, and that's kind of why we're seeing colon cancer development. Um,
2: High-fiber foods escort all the intestinal contents along much quicker. Right. So if there's a happens to be a carcinogen in what you've eaten, the fiber helps carry it away quicker. So instead of having a transit time of 48 hours for something to get out of your intestinal tract, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 20 hours, right. something like that. So, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that fiber changes the bacteria in your digestive tract. The more healthy fiber you have, the healthier the bacteria are. And if you don't have a high-fiber diet, you have sort of maladjusted bacteria, that's the microbiome, Mm -hmm. um, that then turn your digestive juices into carcinogenic compounds. So fiber is uh, healthy in in all of those ways.
0: Well, let's put a number on that. I know that you are a fiber fan based off of your previous Mm -hmm. appearances here on the exam room. How much fiber should we be getting in a day?
2: Well, your average American right now, if, if you went downstairs here and just grabbed people off the sidewalk, uh, they might be getting between 10 and 15 grams a day. They should be doubling that, mm. 20 to 30 to 40, um, something like that. 20 is not really enough. I, I would aim for about 40. Uh, and you will see in some countries what people call developing countries, except that their diets are better than ours, um, they're having high-fiber foods. They could be getting 50 or 60 grams of fiber a day.
0: Sure. And I, I think that... One of the things that, especially if somebody goes through one of our immersion programs here at the Physicians Committee or the 21-Day Vegan Kickstart, is they kind of start to realize how easy it is to get more fiber in your diet when you're eating that that plant-based diet. You, you're a doctor. I'm sure that you've worked with patients and certainly seeing people here at the Physicians Committee or upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. like. You have to see that oh, wow moment that that's really special and, and has to be gratifying for you as a physician. Well, you
2: know, you don't have to go to the store and get a fiber supplement. You know, I know they're advertised all the time, but people do at some point discover, wait a minute, it's not on the shelf of the drugstore. Drug it's at the grocery store in the produce aisle uh, or in the bean aisle or the whole grain aisle or the fruit aisle, whatever it is. Um, fiber is a normal part of the foods that our bodies are designed for. So if you're getting vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans and they're making up your diet you'll get get all the fiber you need
0: well let's talk about this uh as this is the cancer fighting food uh segment here uh what are some of your favorite high fiber foods like if if somebody came to you and said dr barnard i need more fiber in my life what should i be eating
2: um well top top of the list is the neglected humble bean beans, beans. It, uh, just one serving of bean has about seven grams of fiber so if you're, you're talking about aiming for 30 or 40 um, they're going to be your biggest friend and in fact that's a little bit why they can cause gas for some people so mm-hmm. make sure you cook them well <laughs> um, and and if you're new to all of this start small it, it will take your body will adapt right to it so you're not gonna have gas forever um, number two on the list uh, beans are seven grams per serving. Uh, at about four grams per serving are vegetables. Typical vegetables have about four grams. Uh, typical fruits, like an apple or an orange, about three. So those are the big guys. Um, people think, well, it's got to be my high-fiber bread or cereal. That's actually nearer the bottom of the list. Really? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. E- even the, the fortified ones?
2: Well, you, you, if they dump in fiber, they, right. can, they can add it t- to whatever they want. But, but typically, the, the whole grain cereals are not as high in fiber as our friend the bean. So I want to cheerlead for beans they got protein. they got calcium. They've got fibers, soluble and insoluble. Yeah. They have iron. They do. They've got all kinds of good things. Y- you know what I like most They about don't have b- a good lobby group.
0: Well, I think that you should start that. I mean, <laughs> we have three other people in this room right now. We have the muscle here. We can start lobbying. We can. Beans are healthy food. But y- you know what I like most about beans? And this is just straight wacky. I love the other name for beans. Legume. That's just such a, a fun word to say. Yes. Say it. You, you, it's impossible to say legume without smiling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, legumes are healthy. And I want to say that in many other cultures, in fact, just about every culture other than the United States, mm-hmm. beans are consumed still. They're a big part of the diet, even breakfast. An American goes to England, and they, they go down to the breakfast bar in the hotel, and they discover there's a big pot of baked beans. Which you think, wait, isn't that lunch? Uh-uh. They have it for breakfast. Same in Australia. If you go to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, like Cancun and whatever, black beans for breakfast every day. Hmm. It's absolutely routine. And uh, are, You know, the Americans are having steak and eggs, but the locals are having beans with salsa.
0: Are then we seeing a lower prevalence of cancer cases in those other countries?
2: If those foods are consumed, yes. Um, but those those foods are are rapidly getting neg- neglected. This is what we saw in Japan. Japan eats legumes, but it's soybeans, uh-huh. black beans in Mexico, uh, maybe pinto beans in in uh, in some parts of Latin America, um, navy beans in England, soybeans in Japan, and then soybean products like tempeh or tofu, and they are consumed hugely. But with westernization, it's more meat and more dairy.
0: Gotcha. And we have talked a lot about meat, but let's, let's talk about the link between dairy and cancer because that's equally as strong as meat, processed meat.
2: Uh, perhaps even higher for certain cancers. With regard to prostate cancer, there have been several studies.
0: And it started out with just
2: an observation. Dairy-consuming countries like Finland or Sweden or Norway or the United States had a lot more prostate cancer than, say, Japan, which dairy is not a traditional part of the Japanese diet. And then the second piece of evidence was when dairy started coming in, prostate cancer rates started going up. So researchers at Harvard did a couple of big studies. The Physicians Health Study was one. About 21,000 physicians. And the men who drank the most milk had 34% higher prostate cancer risk than the men who avoided it. Mm. And they did another study, the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study. The big dairy consumers had 60% more prostate cancer. And what we think is happening is that when a man consumes milk, it does something in his blood that's the same as what it does in the blood of a calf who's drinking milk from, from
0: her mom. Right.
2: When a man drinks milk, something called IGF-1 is formed in the blood, insulin-like growth factor. And this is – I'm not saying it's coming from the milk. It's when you drink the milk, your body your body makes it because of the sugars and the proteins in the milk. Your body starts making this, and IGF-1 is a cancer promoter.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Mm. And I assume then cheese goes right along with that. All the dairy products. All of them. Yeah, they all go along with it. Um, So we've talked about, I want to dive in specifically to men. We've talked about the link between prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, and diet. Uh, Then meat and dairy, the two foods most associated with it. And we talked about already, we kind of glossed over the foods that help Prevent cancer, or at least lower the risk. Are there any specifically that have been tied to either prostate or colorectal cancer?
2: With regard to, to protection, I already mentioned tomatoes. And, and it's a funny thing um, when researchers have looked at protective foods, tomatoes came right up. And, and it turned out that it can be any kind of tomatoes it can be raw tomatoes, it can be cooked tomatoes, it can be spaghetti sauce, mm. it can be salsa, it can be ketchup. It's, I'm not saying that they're all equally healthy, but what I'm saying is they all have lycopene, and they are all associated with a reduction in the risk of getting cancer. For men who have prostate cancer, Dean Ornish, who did such a wonderful thing by showing that you could reverse heart disease, did a study on men who had prostate cancer, and he put them on, half of the men on a vegan diet, and the men who did not go on the vegan diet continued to progress. They continued to get worse. Uh, you do a blood test called PSA prostate-specific antigen, and the men who did not go vegan, on average, their PSA went up about 6% over a year. That's that's what cancer does. Mm. The men on the vegan diet, uh, over a year, their PSA, on average, did not rise. It actually fell about 4%, um, meaning that I, I don't think anyone should just rely on diet and never have tests and never have any kind of treatment, sure. but you're going to eat, and we should eat the foods that are protective and a vegan diet means you're not getting any dairy that's good right you're not getting any meat that's good you're getting vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans which are very low in fat very high in fiber very high in the natural phytochemicals that help you to tackle cancer
0: and i think that it should be noted that a lot of people may not realize that in meat in dairy there's how much fiber
2: Right. Um, it's not a plant. <laughs> Meat is not a plant. Chicken is not a plant. Wild-caught salmon is not a plant. So it does not have any fiber at all. Goose egg. Right. Goose egg. Exactly. And, you know, it's been troubling. When, when researchers have tried to, to figure out what is going on, they've tracked consumption of these foods. And it's very clear that the more you are on a meaty diet, the higher your risk of several forms of cancer.
0: Mm. Uh, let's, uh, we, we talked about the men now. Let's, let's talk about the women. Uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer. Let's talk about foods that can help lower the risk there. A woman comes to you. She wants to lower the risk. What foods do you prescribe?
2: Okay. Um, first of all, part of the value of a plant-based diet is that it helps people control body weight. And, and here, for breast cancer, body weight is really important because, as I mentioned earlier, every fat cell, is busily making estrogens. Right. That causes cancer. So if a woman has a lower body weight, she's going to be healthier. And surprisingly enough, even gradations of weight within what we would consider the healthy range seem to affect cancer risk and cancer progression. So let's say a healthy body mass index, which, by the way, you can go online and just look at a BMI calculator. Right. You put in your height and your weight, and it'll tell you what your BMI is. And a healthy... Body mass index is between 18.5 and 25. You want to be in there. But when you look at the women who are around 19, 20, 21, and you compare the women who are around 24, 25, they're all in what we would call the healthy range. But the ones at the lower end of that range tend to do somewhat better. Hmm. Um, and and they, do, they also do better with regard to fertility, oddly enough. All the, the hormone-related things are better when you're a little bit leaner. Now, I don't mean emaciated. I don't mean because it's possible to have a very deficient diet and and be too skinny. Right. Um, You don't want it to be there either. Uh, But for breast cancer prevention, you want to be in the healthy range. And the heavier a woman is, the higher her risk of postmenopausal breast cancer.
0: Interesting. Uh, Real quick, just a reminder, if you have a question, go ahead and post that in the comments section below. Um, Up on our website, pcrm.org, there is a very fascinating uh, infographic that talks about uh, the link between cancer and nutrition. And it kind of shows you the various foods that decrease your risk and then the foods that increase your risk. And it says uh, average, on average, two glasses of milk will increase your risk of prostate cancer by 60%. And I want to ask you about this one because this one surprised me. Uh, A calcium supplement, 400 milligrams per day, uh, increases the risk of prostate cancer by 51%. Why is that?
2: You know, you think of a calcium supplement as being a good thing. It'll protect your bones. And if, let's say, a person has osteoporosis and it's part of a treatment program, okay, here's the deal. Um, Normally, and and fast your seatbelt. This is good. there are a few steps in this, right. <laughs> few steps in this, in this explanation. Um, vitamin D comes from sunlight on your skin, right? And vitamin D is your body uses it to absorb calcium from the foods you eat. Vitamin D has a completely separate benefit; it it reduces cancer risk. So you get some sun; it's on your skin. Uh, your vitamin D is is uh, formed, and that helps prevent cancer. All right. So let's say I have a couple glasses of milk, or I have a calcium supplement. I'm getting a lot of calcium, probably too much. And the body says, wait a minute, you got all this calcium. You're you're getting too much calcium. And so then it starts to, to stop the body's activation of vitamin D. Hmm. And so the sun hits your skin, but your body says, look, don't activate that. Because you're, if you do, you're going to be absorbing more and more calcium because of all that vitamin D. And then you lose the cancer prevention part of vitamin D, too. So the the, the point is calcium supplements and high ultra high calcium foods like dairy will reduce vitamin d activity
0: interesting
2: and then cancer is more likely that's uh, a theory but it's a good theory and we have a lot of evidence supporting it
0: i feel like i should unbuckle my seatbelt now that that was a nice ride you just took us on yeah
2: i i hope everyone stuck with us on that
0: um Okay, so if you're curious about this infographic we were referencing, that is up on the cancer resource section of PCRM.org. Search out, and I quote, applying the precautionary principle to nutrition and cancer lists out about a dozen foods and beverages there and shows you the, the links.
2: Can I give you one other? By all means. Um, a lot of people imagine, okay, Mediterranean diet, glass of red wine, that's going to be good for me. Mm-hmm. Because it's got something in it. What is that pigment? They're talking about resveratrol. You know. I mean, so people have, read magazines like this. I think I should have that. I hate to tell everybody they've got to take off their party hat. Uh-oh. But alcohol increases the risk of several forms of cancer, particularly breast cancer. And there's not a threshold. Meaning, let's say a woman is not drinking at all. And she says, okay, uh, Mediterranean diet, I should have a glass of red wine every day. Her risk of breast cancer just went up. And if it's two glasses, it went up again. And if it's three, it's starting to, to be a serious contributor to her risk. Um, if she has just a glass every couple of days, mm-hmm. the added risk is not very much. But it's just dose response. The the less alcohol she has in her life, the better she's going to be. Fascinating. A lot of people associate that red wine with a lot of health benefits. It's been pushed. We see this so much. You know, somebody's got a commercial product they want to sell, so they make it sound sexy and whatever. And and some people have said, you know, uh, red wine might reduce the risk of Alzheimer's or it might reduce the risk of heart disease. Maybe. But maybe it's not the alcohol. Maybe it's the constituents of the grape, like the anthocyanins that are the pigments. And so you can get those from grape juice just as you can from from, from wine.
0: How about that? Yep. All right. Uh, question time. Uh, Gigi wants to know: there are all types of cancer in my family. Is it genetic?
2: Okay. Uh, great question. First of all, I'm sorry that um, you've had this in your family, and I hope your family members are doing as well as as humanly possible. Uh, some cancers can be genetic, and doctors can now do tests for certain genetic traits uh, that have come up for breast cancer and other forms of the disease. That said, we don't just give our kids DNA. We give them recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes what runs through families are certain um, food traditions. And sometimes you look at the family and the grandparents are overweight and the kids are overweight and everybody's overweight. And that's because of the way they're eating. And that, in turn, is 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 um, going to increase their cancer risk.
0: Another question here from Francis. Uh, this is an interesting one. Should we be concerned about the amount of sodium that are in frozen vegan dinners?
2: Um, well, it's not just vegan dinners. Um, Processed foods in general often have a lot of sodium in them, and it's purely for taste. They don't need them. Um, But whether it's vegan or non-vegan, you see it in many canned foods, and you see it in some uh, pre-prepared dinners. Um, It's not going to increase your cancer risk, but it will raise your blood pressure. Um, If blood pressure is not a big issue for you, I wouldn't worry too much about the higher sodium things. Uh, You want to keep your total sodium intake down below roughly 1,500 or 2,000 uh, milligrams uh, per day. So you can look at the label. You can add it up. And if you haven't hit that level, you're going to be okay.
0: Great question here from Sandra. I really like this one. Should we be concerned with vegan processed meats?
2: Ah, great question. No. Um, uh uh-huh. <laughs> No. Um, you're talking about the veggie dog. Correct. Or the veggie sausage. Correct. No. No. Um, When processed meats were were shown to cause colorectal cancer, and they also contribute to other forms of the disease, the question was why. And part of the reason why may be the saturated fats. Part of the reason is the the carcinogens that form when they're cooked. Um, Part of the reason is heme iron, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in some of these. And for the most part, um, plant products don't have those carcinogens. Right. Um, uh, There is one product called the Impossible Burger, um, which has been marketed and they've they're adding heme iron to it to, because they imagine that this causes a meaty taste. Um, it's also very very high in um, coconut oil um, so its saturated fat content is terribly high right um, Apart from the impossible burger though, um, which, which by the way, I'm, I'm hoping that the manufacturers will take the heme out of it right. and get rid of the coconut fat because you can make it perfectly tasty veggie burger without that stuff Sure, Uh, but the other the others really don't have those faults Uh,
0: let me i'm sure that some people are wondering what's the difference between heme iron and regular iron
2: okay um iron your body needs a certain amount of iron right um and there's iron in green leafy vegetables and that will not hurt you the iron that's that's in the plants um and your body takes it and puts it into hemoglobin Uh, which is what makes red cells red, and it escorts oxygen around. Um, There's also some of it in muscle tissue. And so heme iron is the iron that's with the heme molecule, which is a big molecule, um, and that is believed to be a contributor to colorectal cancer. So it's the iron that you get as part of the heme iron from muscle tissue that a person is eating.
0: All right, two more. Uh, So so
2: the iron that's in broccoli is not going to cause cancer.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That's not heme iron. Right. Right. Uh two more. Um I think that uh this is a good one. This one from Greg. Can you give some tips to reduce LDL cholesterol? All my other numbers are great.
2: Okay. Um step 1 go vegan. Um if you're halfway vegan or or not vegan, now is the time to go all the way. Take about 90 days. No animal products at all. Not 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 an ounce of skinless chicken breast or a little salmon just 100% vegan because when you do that there is no animal fat and there's no cholesterol in your diet at all Um, step two keep oils really really low Um, don't add oils when you cook learn the non-oil cooking techniques Um, and especially palm oil and coconut oil avoid them they're poison they will raise your cholesterol Um, step three uh, bring on the high fiber foods especially what's called soluble fiber that's oats uh, also beans, very good, and now go through ninety days like that. Right, get tested at the end. If your cholesterol level has not budged, then it's probably a genetic issue. Um, for ninety percent of people, their cholesterol goes through the floor um, by, by with these steps. But but you know,
0: all right, and let's let's end with a fun one. This is this may be my favorite. Uh, Everett wants to know, Doctor Barnard, what's your favorite bean?
2: Well, I want to cheerlead for the whole group, I have to say, but but I have to tell you, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, and on Main Street in Fargo, there's a restaurant called the Mexican Village, and back in the 1970s when they opened up, or 1960s even, I used to go in there and I had the jalapeno burrito, Mm -hmm. which is filled with as many jalapenos as they can make it without being life-threatening, but the rest (laughs) was pinto beans that were very well cooked, and... If you leave off the cheese, it's completely vegan, has a vegan gravy, delicious, and to this day, they still serve it. And there is no meal more delicious than that. Because all the beans, all the pintos, the pinto beans have vitamin P, and the jalapenos have vitamin J. And that's a joke, listeners. Okay. Hi-oh! <laughs> okay. Waka-waka! But if with enough vitamin P and vitamin J, you will live forever.
0: Outstanding. You-, you like the spicy foods, huh? The jalapeno burrito.
2: It's delicious. Okay. Next, the Chuck... Next time you're in Fargo, come with me to the Mexican Village, okay? You, you got a deal. All right. You know,
0: I used to work at a burrito restaurant. That was my high school job, one you, of them.
2: Yes, but you know there's bad burritos, too. There's the chicken burritos and the beef burritos and the bacon burritos and all this stuff. Forget all that stuff. A traditional burrito is beans, maybe some rice, maybe not, a little bit of salsa, a few jalapenos in there. That's good for
0: Are we them. talking fresh jalapenos or the pickled jalapenos? Mm, I do the pickled ones. Yeah.
2: The fresh ones can sometimes be a little life-threatening.
0: Yeah. And you don't need, <laughs> you don't need many. You just a couple, one or two. This this has been a lot of fun. We need to do this again. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Barnard. As a man... I will tell you that aside from the ties to cancer, the thing that struck me most in that conversation was when Dr. Barnard was talking about how men who eat a high fat diet can begin to develop breast tissue. That's not really something that I thought about when I was still 420 pounds. I just thought that the lumps on my chest were basically just another fold of fat, so to speak. But that was not the case. And there are millions of guys out there who are probably thinking the same thing. But it is actually fat cells that are producing estrogen. Something to think about there, fellas. Before we wrap up today, I also want to extend a special invitation to you to come meet Dr. Barnard and Dr. Robert Osfeld and Dr. Dean Ornish and our own Fiber Queen dietitian Lee Crosby, and more than a dozen other movers and shakers in the plant-based community at the upcoming International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. The conference this year is being held right here. In Washington, D.C., at the beautiful Grand Hyatt Hotel. Really is gorgeous. Mark your calendars right now. Grab a pen, grab a marker, grab a crayon. It really doesn't matter. Mark them July 26th and 27th. It is a virtual who's who of plant based doctors and researchers all of whom they're going to be there sharing the most recent findings on preventative medicine. We're going to be taking a closer look at the things that we were talking about today and a whole lot more. We're talking about not just treating cancer or treating heart disease or diabetes, but lowering the risk of developing them in the first place. And if you like gut microbiome, I'm telling you right now, spoiler alert, you need to go see Dr. Lee Frame's session. That is going to be epic. And guess what? I'm also going to be there taping episodes of The Exam Room live at the conference it would be so great if you were there as well come up and say hi but there are only a few seats left and the time to get your tickets is running out so head over to pcrm.org slash icnm and reserve your seat today pcrm.org slash icnm and by the way while you're there you can also get the full list of speakers and find out what it is that they're talking about kind of make your plans about who it is you want to see what room you want to be in when what presentation is going on Really, it is going to be an epic weekend. I would love so much if you could come in and take in all of that information. It would be wonderful if you were there. And last bit of business, it is an important one. We have had so many new listeners to the exam room recently and we cannot thank you enough and we want to keep seeing those numbers go up because the more people that listen the more people will learn about the life-saving information that is talked about on this show the power of the food that is on your plate cannot be overstated The connection there is fascinating and important and can help lead to a longer and healthier life. So if you haven't already done so, please go ahead, take a second, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your favorite shows from. And when you do, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice comment if you would be so kind. And that way, we can continue to spread the message bonus points by the way if you also share the show with a friend or family member my thanks again to doctors t colin campbell and neil barnard for coming on the program today so for everyone here at the physicians committee i am the weight loss champion chuck carroll thank you so much for listening and remember keep it plant-based